Ladies and gentlemen, friends and colleagues, my name is Henrik Urdal and I'm the director here at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO. It is my great pleasure to welcome you uh, all here to PRIO today for the seminar on global conflict trends in the shadow of Ukraine. PRIO's mission, as many of you will know, is to conduct research in the interest of peace. One of our most long-standing contributions to this end is the provision and analysis of global conflict data. Trying to understand the rise and decline of certain forms of organized violent armed conflict over time and the causes and consequences of these trends. And as the title uh, of this seminar also suggests, a key contribution of this endeavor is to document the conflicts that may not receive much media attention. Sometimes these forgotten conflicts can be just as disruptive, if, no, if not more, than the conflicts that are getting the daily headlines. PRIO's conflict data collection efforts include an extensive catalog of both global and local data covering different types of conflict, different measures, and shared over a variety of formats and platforms. The advent of the GIS revolution a few years back led up to the establishment of the PRIO grid, providing a structure for sharing spatial and temporal data related to conflict analysis. And this structure has become a widely used resource all around the world. Yet no single effort has been more important at PRIO than the long-term collaboration with the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University. The Uppsala Conflict Data Program, or UCDP, has for decades provided the most trusted, high quality and transparent conflict data that is available anywhere and is widely used by both academic and policy communities alike. While the UCDP today provides a number of different conflict data services freely and publicly available, the initial annual country-level conflict data covering internal and interstate conflict down to 25 battle deaths per year is still published annually in PRIO's Journal of Peace Research. Incidentally, this year marks the 30th anniversary of this publishing tradition. In August 1993, the first ever conflict data article was published in JPR covering four years of data since the end of the Cold War. And I cite from the abstract, um, predictions for the post-Cold War era have varied from visions of a world in which war has become obsolete to one wracked by ethnic and nationalist violence. This article reports data on three levels of armed conflict for the period 1989 to 1992 and makes a first analysis of them. So far, neither the most pessimistic nor the most optimistic predictions are borne out. The number of armed conflicts has increased somewhat, but this is mainly due to an increase in minor armed conflicts, particularly from 1991 to 1992. So this was the first analysis of the conflict data published in the Journal of Peace Research. And for many years, the conflict data covered only the post-Cold War period. However, around the turn of the millennium, a major backdating effort of the data set to 1946 took place as a joint PRIO and Uppsala effort with the extended data article published in JPR in 2002. And one of today's panelists, Håvard Strand, was among the authors. So were PRIO's Nils Petter Gledic and Uppsala's 
Petter Wallenstein, the two old, grand old men of Nordic uh, Peace Research, as well as Mikael Egerson and Margareta Solberg from Uppsala. The article has become the standard reference uh, to what has become known as the UCDP PRIO dataset, which this morning was only a tiny handful short of 5,000 citations in Google Scholar. On that note, I would like to introduce Sean Davis, uh, who will present the updated 2022 data, after which there will be a panel discussion led by Siri Osgusta, who is the director of the PRIO Conflict Trends Project. Sean is a senior analyst at the Department of Peace and Conflict at Uppsala University, and he has been part of the team that coded the UCDP conflict data this year. So Sean, the floor is yours. Uh, well, I'll quickly go into our definitions. Uh, ah, that's uh, into our definitions of uh, that we use at the UCDP before presenting the trends of uh, 2022 in all three different categories of violence. So as mentioned, we code state-based violence, non-state violence, and one-sided violence. State-based violence uh, is a limited conflict that includes at least one government of a country and involves uh, either another government of a country or a non-state group involved of uh, fighting over an state incompatibility over territory or government. Non-state uh, violence on the other hand is uh, between either two formerly organized groups, meaning rebel groups or uh, criminal groups with a state of name and a command structure, or between two informally groups, uh, such as ethnic groups, tribal uh, violence, and such a, uh, so on. One-sided violence is limited to the direct and uh, conscious targeting of civilians. So most civilian fatalities is included in the other categories, whereas this is limited to massacres, ethnic cleansing, genocide, and uh, executions and such. Uh, we only code the, direct, uh, the use of armed force to cause direct deaths, meaning that we do not include fatalities from indirect causes such as starvation, uh, disease, lack of health care and such. And our conflicts are considered active at 25 deaths in a year. Now on to the fatalities numbers for 2022. As you can see on the graph, fatality in the grade uh, out zone, that fatalities has increased quite dramatically from the year before by 97% from uh, around 120,000 to just under 240,000. Visible in the black line is that this trend was very uh, strongly driven by state-based violence, which in uh, increased by more than 100%. And state-based violence was very strongly dominated by just two conflicts. Uh, the war in Ethiopia against the TPLF and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Ethiopia causing around 100,000 deaths and uh, the Russian invasion over 80,000. Uh, uh, from this uh, thing, you can quite clearly see that there's a distinct difference between the number two and the number three. Uh, most violent conflicts, with the third being the one of the many non-state conflicts in Mexico. Uh, but a quite distinct difference between 80,000 and less than 4,000. 
2022, we recorded 55 uh, active state-based conflicts, uh, meaning that they achieved at least 25 battle-related deaths. Uh, this is fairly uh, standard for the period from 2015, when we recorded between 52 and 56 state-based conflicts, but a far cry from the 2000 to 2013 uh, levels, where we had 30-ish conflicts per year. Uh, of these 55 conflicts, eight were coded as wars, meaning that they reached at least 1,000 battle-related deaths in a year. This was an increase by three compared to the 2021 data. Um, and it's a rather worrying sign, though it is still at the levels at, that we have seen in previous years. Uh, in total, we recorded 200,000 state-based uh, fatalities. Um, as seen quite clearly on this graph, uh, the trend was driven upwards by the uh, fighting done in Europe and in, uh, um, in Africa, driven by Ukraine and Ethiopia. But uh, what you can also see is that the violence in both the Middle East and Asia fell sharply. This was mainly due to in, uh, the Middle East case by the ceasefire in Yemen between uh, April and October of the year and which has still maintained some uh, well, violence at quite low levels comparatively to previous years. And in uh, Asia, of course, the war in Afghanistan mainly ended with a Taliban victory, which has at least decreased state-based violence to a fair extent. On to non-state violence. Uh, in uh, 2022, we recorded 82 non-state conflicts the second highest number we recorded uh, throughout the period we coded since 1989. The uh, number of deaths decreased, however, uh, from, uh, from 25,000 to 21,000 deaths. Uh, this change was mainly driven by uh, the decrease in violence in the Americas, specifically Mexico, uh, which for the first time since violence skyrocketed in 2017, uh, decreased. Uh, still, Mexico absolutely dominates the trade in non-state uh, non violence. Responsible for nine out of the ten most violent non-state conflicts in 2022. Uh, and specifically, the Jalisco Cartel new gen uh, generation was involved in seven of these, and more than half the deaths of the year. This has been the case for several years now, since so uh, 2017, when the leader of the old Sinola cartel was arrested, causing a power vacuum in Mexico. In uh, one-sided violence, uh, we recorded 45 uh, actors which had targeted uh, civilians and killed them, at least 25 during that year. Uh, in total, these 45 actors killed 11,800 civilians, which is the highest number since 2014. Of these fatalities, 70% took place in Africa, there were, uh, most of those in the Congo, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, Islamic State has been the actor for eight consecutive years, responsible for the most one-sided violence, uh, this year causing about 3,700, a slight uptick uh, from previous year, though far from their highest uh, level in 2014. Uh, Otherwise, uh, we've in the last couple of years seen an uptick in governments being responsible for one-sided violence, 
this year, particularly Russia in its war in Ukraine and Eritrea in its involvement in the war in Ethiopia. Uh, as seen in the graph, however, but, uh, not, uh, one sided violence is far off from its highest levels being in the data uh, compared to the random genocide, which, well, nothing we've really seen as compared to that uh, in the data. Uh, well, if you want to know more about trends, please check out the article. Um, thanks for going through the data. Um, so now we're going to have a panel discussion. Uh, we're going to dig a little bit more deeper into the data and discuss what it actually means. Uh, so in addition to Sean, uh, on the panel we have Håvard Strand, who's an associated professor at the Department of Political Science at UIO, as well as a research senior researcher here at Brio. Uh, and as uh, Henrik mentioned, Robert has worked with this data for a couple of decades. Uh, and we also have Luis Ohl, uh, uh, who is a research professor at the Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Bergen. Uh, she has followed politics at the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia in particular for the last two decades and will elaborate on Ethiopia. Uh, but to start off, Hovard, um, you have worked with this data for many years. Uh, do you see a shift in trends this year compared to previous years? I'm afraid to say we do. And, and I, I'd like to give that some context. Um, when, when we compiled the, what's called the long list, uh, the, the extension of the UCDP data set from 89 back to 45, uh, 20 years ago, um, that some, there were some periods that were pretty clear. So you had the Cold War. Obviously, there is uh, an ideological dimension to lots of conflicts. There is a anti-colonial uh, dimension to many conflicts for a significant period of time. These were themes that were easily identifiable. And at the end of, of the Cold War, um, nationalism comes in as sort of the the broad theme of conflicts in the 1990s. That was superseded by political Islam uh, after 9-11. I think 2006 was the first year where we saw Islamist conflicts dominate the update. This year, for the first time since 2006, political Islam does not feature prominently in the UCDP update. And that which do feature prominently is scary, and that is large-scale interstate war. So we have, um, we got the, the situation in Ethiopia, which we'll hear more about. We got the situation in Ukraine. Then there are several conflicts that haven't turned into full-scale war. India, China has a persistent level of violence where they currently beat each other with sticks. Um, the situation around Taiwan is worrisome. And, and it's, not, uh, it's not in any way are, am I saying that interstate wars are dominating the number of conflicts, because they're not. But they are dominating the, uh, the fatality rankings save for Mexico, and it's not just 
it's not just the uh, the Ukraine-Russia conflict or the Eritrea-Ethiopia conflict, but it's also uh, recently we've had uh, Azerbaijan-Armenia, uh, which has been uh, which was a uh, a very deadly conflict, and the situation in Yemen has very strong interstate um, dimensions. So. So that is the the number one scary thing that I would like to highlight from this update. Uh, last spring, um, several researchers suggested that the, the war in Ukraine would spur more violence in the Middle East due to food shortage and worsening of the economic situation. Um, but you also just mentioned that we see less Islamic conflicts. Can you shed can can the update shed some light on this expectation that we saw a year ago? No, I don't think it can, as a matter of fact. I, d I don't think, so uh, um, some might have expected this, but we, we haven't seen it. If anything, what we've seen is, is a political dimension that's become more contentious in places uh, like Belarus, in Russia itself, in several of the um, uh, 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 former Soviet uh, countries south of Russia where um, there has been large-scale demonstrations and in some instances violence uh, used in a, in a purely political setting. Um, but, but they haven't turned into armed conflicts yet. But, they, but there are several of these, that, and I'm looking at you, Sean. Um, could, you, could you tell us a bit more about are, th are there political actors in any of these countries that you are recording and following that haven't quite crossed the, the threshold yet? I mean, uh, none that I would probably expect to rise up to any sort of uh, high-level violence at the moment that I'm aware of. Uh, though there's always several actors, uh, especially around the Kurdish areas, that are uh, on or just below the level of activity. Can also add that uh, uh, the expectation on of uh, increased violence in the Middle East might actually have, uh, well, been a bit uh, misdirected. Uh, so, like in, in uh, Yemen, one of the motivations for the ceasefire was particularly to be able to handle the food shortages better, uh, which actually drove down, down violence in the Middle East uh, in general. So, does that mean that the uh, uh, worry that about food shortage that Ukraine, the Ukraine conflict created, actually gave a push for the ceasefire in Yemen. Yes, for uh, in the short term at least. That does not mean it will keep on having, well, if you can call it a positive effect, but uh, at least in this sense. That's an interesting perspective as well. Uh, but Sean, there is, uh, we have also seen in the past few years an increase of internationalized civil wars. Could you say a little bit about what that is and why we have seen this increase? So internationalized uh, civil wars is a subcategory of state-based violence where one or both parties receive external warring support from a foreign uh, government. So a foreign government sends troops or other military uh, direct aid such as uh, conducting airstrikes in support of one of the warring parties in a conflict. 
since uh, 2001, since 9/11, basically, this has been rising. Though it really took off in 2014, as the Islamic State spread across the world, basically, and a lot of Western governments stepped in to try to stem that increase. Uh, this has uh, now seen a slight uh, decrease. Uh, so Western governments has refocused their efforts towards an increased rivalry with China and, to a lesser extent, uh, Russia. So you think that the, the decrease that we see this year is that a uh, quintal dip, or is it is it as it, it is a consequence of other conflicts? Part of a broader trend of Western governments disengaging from a lost lot of these. Uh, Islamist conflicts and the uh, national security agenda has been more directed towards an interstate conflict scenario rather than these transnational threats, which uh, is the Islamic State represented. Of course, it's also been partly driven by deteriorating uh, relationships uh, of like uh, between the French uh, and uh, different West African governments after the military coups, which has led to their withdrawal. And Hovard, uh, Sean mentions that this is partly due to IS, and IS have been a major actor on the conflict scene for the past seven, eight years, and has been involved in around 15, 16 different conflict countries over the past few years, all the way from West Africa to to the Philippines. And now we know that IS in uh, Syria and uh, Iraq has been beaten more or less down, but we still see this trend of. Um, It's a persistent trend of uh, IS being involved in conflicts. Can you do you have any thoughts about that? Why do we see this continue? Mm. Um, it's a good question. Um, and so the, the the definition that Sean showed us um, is state-centric in our conception of the state. If you asked IS, I think they would say that they're fighting one conflict. And and from their political entity centric point of view, that's perhaps what they're doing. And then it's not, because so what essentially what we're doing here is trying to enforce some conflict definitions onto an unsuspecting reality that doesn't always see things coming. For instance, the correlates war that set codes the Second World War as a war that Poland started and Poland won. And then some other people joined, and and it, it IS face uh, IS gives us some challenges in that IS doesn't fit very well with our way of coding conflicts, and 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 UCDP's consistent solution to this is to separate um, a good number of conflicts up into. Mm, Parallel conflicts, because the um, uh, the the issue at stake is not necessarily the same. What IS seems to have done is to sort of establish a a McDonald's of armed conflict. It's a franchise. You can you can um, align yourself with IS, and you'll get free advertising. And that seems to be very efficient. And I think that's part of why we see this persistence, why IS um, remains um, a low-level threat in very many conflicts. 
Yes, because mo most of these conflicts, IS, is it's a very low-level uh, conflict. Um, another type of non-state actors who who act like this is the Wagner Group. How does uh, Uppsala deal with those kind of actors in the conflicts? Uh, so these sort of uh, third-party actors are generally coded towards the side they are fighting for. So when Wagner joins a conflict, they'll generally fight on behalf of the government. They are hiding to fight on their behalf, and therefore they are coded as that government. So that means, for example, the Wagner group in the Central African Republic, that would mean the, the state. Central African government. Right. Um, so we talked a little bit about more of the general trend, but I mean, there is an obvious uh, feature of this data uh, this year, and that's uh, Ethiopia with 100,000 battle deaths. Um, this is the highest uh, number since the genocide in Rwanda, and we also shown graphs where that is a really high number. But it's also the highest state-based conflict uh, fatalities since Iraq's attack on Kurdistan in 1987. Uh, so this is more than 30 years since we've seen this type of conflict. Um, and I think, uh, even as a conflict researcher, it probably shouldn't, but it did come as a surprise because we have all focused so much on Ukraine. Um, and Ukraine taking most of the attention. And partly also because there's been a media blackout and internet shutdown in Ethiopia for the past year. Um, so, Luis... Could you maybe, as an expert of Ethiopia, uh, give us an introduction to the conflict, first of all, particularly in what happened in the fall of 2022? Yeah. So, <coughs> so the Ethiopian conflict is an example of, if you can put it bluntly, a, a transition gone very, very, very bad. Um, it was, it's a conflict between the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Okay, it's not working. Uh, TPLF and the government of Abiy Ahmed, who is the prime minister, who came to power in 2018 and then put TPLF in the corner. And they withdrew to their region, a uh, region in the north of Ethiopia with around 6 million people. Um, then the tension was growing between these two. Uh, there was a confrontation that was expected, but maybe not as violent and, and as um, as much uh, affecting civilians and also including use of sexual violence. That was not expected. Um, the, uh, um, the, the conflict was about, um, was about um, I guess, power and, uh, <laughs> and also um, TPLF feeling um, very much under pressure and they were uh, in danger of being held accountable for the things that they had done during the time when they were in power since 1991. Uh, but it was also about uh, how uh, Tigray region and other regions in the country should be governed and controlled by the central government. Um, then there have been a lot of back and forth. Uh, Abiy Ahmed said as Putin that this uh, kind of uh, 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 what, what did he call it, law and order operation, as, uh, uh, was going to be done by three weeks. Um, it didn't. TPLF has uh, very strong support in Tigray, so they managed to mobilize um, a lot of support and a lot of people willing to fight. Uh, so there was a, a lot of back and forth. TPLF managed to, to retake a lot of uh, areas. 
Uh, and then, um, I guess Ethiopia was under a lot of pressure from the international community to end the war. So there was a sort of brinkmanship, uh, very, very deadly brinkmanship going on uh, in the autumn of 2022 that led to uh, all these deaths uh, that you've seen in, in your uh, data. Uh, Ethiopia knew that they had to, they should finish the war, but they wanted to make sure that they had the best position possible to sit along the negotiation table. That's my interpretation. So they, in, in, in November, we, as we know, in October, November uh, last year, they were negotiating a peace agreement uh, in um, Pretoria in South Africa. And, and then TPLF was under no position to actually um, say no to the deal that was offered to them. So it was in many ways uh, an agreement uh, uh, where um, Abiy Ahmed came out as the winner, if you can say that very bluntly. Do you think that uh, the attention that Ukraine conflict has gotten, or how much do you think that affected the way that the Ethiopian conflict played out in terms of when it was solved and the, uh, and the agreement? It's, it's hard to say because it's hard to compare. Uh, I mean, Ethiopia is a, is a country far away from our at attention. Uh, uh, it is not so clear-cut as the Ukraine war, where you have one, uh, one uh, crook, a very clear crook. While in the Ethiopian context, uh, um, I mean, there are different views on who were the, the worst. But of course, the TPLF was, uh, when the war uh, um, uh, was developing, it was clear that the Abiy Ahmed government was was willing to use uh, very, very strong um, tools in order to, to win, including sexual violence and um, attacks on civilian massacres, much by the help of the Eritrean forces and the Amhara militia and Tano militia. Uh, so so it, it somehow, yeah, it was a bit more unclear for people who, where, where they should, at least in the beginning, put their sympathies uh, and also uh, I mean, there was, of course, international, um, uh, there was uh, international attention in the beginning because there was, it, it's quite extraordinary that a, a guy who won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, some years before was now waging a war against his own population. Uh, but then uh, Ethiopia is in a region that has a lot of conflict it's somehow expected that there will be conflict in this area. And the Ukraine war, of course, uh, is uh, much closer to us. It's easier to engage. We may think that people in Ukraine are more, much more similar to us than those who live in Ethiopia. So it's much more easy to identify with the conflict there than, uh, than in Ethiopia. But of course, the, the blackout, the internet cut, makes it difficult for international uh, medias to uh, have pictures that they can put on the screens that they are you know they they need that in order to to cover uh, conflicts <coughs> so that was of course having an impact on the way the conflict was covered so the ucdp data codes about a hundred thousand battle death do you think that's more or less a correct estimate or do you think it's under reported do you have any sense of that? Yeah, so 
I think probably it's undercounted. Uh, we see we have seen like uh, reports very a very big range of uh, of numbers of not only battle deaths but also civilians ranging from 250,000 to 600,000 maybe up to 800,000. Uh, it's very very difficult to estimate and on both sides of the war of the in the war you know there are very strong activist groups who will then push uh, certain narratives so that also has an influence but most basic thing that you know there is it's very difficult to to, to uh, verify what has happened uh, because of the internet shutdown because of no access from international media um, that has very it's, it makes it very likely that these uh, the deaths are undercounted and of course also the use of irregular forces um, the Fano militia and the Afar militia, the Amhara and Ma, uh, um, Afar, that's another re neighboring region uh, of, uh, of Tigray, makes it also difficult to know how many people have died. Uh, and um, that's, that's I, I mean, I, I don't know the details about coding, but uh, you probably have faced some challenges in collecting data on Ethiopia, as far as I can understand. Most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> can you comment some more on that? Yeah, so we've basically had to move away from, uh, otherwise we generally go via news sources and uh, other publicly available information to code countries. We've had to move away from that in Ethiopia almost totally and rely on uh, very few sources with uh, access to the warring parties and unofficial information on their, uh, their own fatalities, which means that our statistics basically only count the, uh, the actual combatants uh, who died. Uh, also in these numbers, uh, the, the other groups you mentioned, such as Banu and such, are coded separately when we have the information to actually uh, include them. So like uh, these groups that are not uh, actually under the command of either warring party or part of other uh, conflicts, often in non-state uh, violence or in one-sided violence. Coming back to the Ukraine conflict, I mean, because it's obviously covered more in the media and everything. But uh, I was listening to the news yesterday, and it said that uh, some someone have estimated that 180,000 Russian soldiers had been killed, which is much higher than the number that UCDP reports. So, how difficult has the coding of Ukraine been? I mean, it's a very different case from Ethiopia. <coughs> it's almost got the opposite problem of you just being bombarded with unreliable information. Uh, so it's, uh, as you're probably all aware, a conflict that has had a lot of media coverage, but also a lot of very biased me media coverage. Whereas Western sources will be very willing to report, uh, well, whatever the Ukrainian government uh, uh, claims they have killed. And we have generally seen that they are not very reliable in that sense. And obviously the Russian sources will be doing just the opposite, making up numbers uh, from benefit. So we've mainly been relying on, uh, well, we had extreme difficulty finding information on Ukrainian soldiers dying because the Ukrainian government has been, uh, has uh, really used like operational security to clamp down on any such information uh, being publicly available. In Russia, we've uh, been forced to rely mainly on obituaries uh, uh, for the country. So uh, 
well, uh, Media Sona, a Russian uh, opposition newspaper in collaboration with the BBC, has been uh, publishing uh, uh, those uh, on a, a basically daily basis that we've been relying very heavily on. What do you think of the number 80,000 in Ukraine? Do you, do you have any feeling about, if, is it really low or is it almost there, do you think? or? I think it's probably undercounting. We generally are quite conservative, uh, and I would probably expect it to increase over the years uh, as we get more uh, information available. Yes, because that's also um, an important feature of the UCDP data is that you continuously backdate and continuously improve your data. And I uh, noticed when when I got the data this year and uh, that um, the Rwandan genocide had increased with two hundred thousand. Uh, because of improved uh, sources, which is great because that we know that we get the best data that there is uh, when we do our analysis. Uh, but uh, ge getting back to Ethiopia, so uh, in November we got a peace agreement in Ethiopia. How likely do you think it will stick? Or more like, what is the situation now and how likely is it that the peace agreement will stick? Yeah, so I think... Uh, it has been relatively successful, the peace agreement, uh, the cessation of hostilities, permanent cessation of hostilities. It has succeeded in a way of being an elite, a pact between the different elites. Uh, so the TPLF leaders are uh, somehow taken into the, uh, the warmth again. And um, they are now establishing an interim government and there is some restoration of basic services and there is disarmament of TDF, uh, TUI Defense Forces. Uh, but when it comes to the situation for the civilians, it's still very critical. Uh, there are problems of access to humanitarian aid, there is a dire need. And um, Eritrean forces have not completely withdrawn from the Tigray region. They were just reported to have uh, interrupted uh, African Union investigation work in the just last month. Um, but it's very unlikely that there will be an armed uh, confrontation between T Tigray and the federal government again. But of course, there are plenty of other conflicts in the country uh, that is creating a lot of instability, a lot of... Uh, civilian deaths as well, uh, particularly related to the Oromo Liberation Army that's operating in the largest region of Oromia. Um, and then, you know, there have been peace uh, negotiations there too in Zanzibar in April, but they didn't, uh, it didn't result in anything. So there is continuing violence, uh, uh, low intensity violence, and, and also targeted killings of Amhara political leaders by Fano militia and uh, people uh, related to that. And there is one particular area that's not solved uh, in the borders between Tigray and Amhara. That's the West Tigray. It's called West Tigray from the 1995, but uh, another name before that. Uh, there, the uh, Amhara um, administration is still, uh, still there and they are still chasing away Tigrayans. There is a human rights watch reports on, on ethnic cleansing still going on. And uh, in the secession of hostilities agreement from Pretoria, uh, there was um, a mention of that, that uh, area, that it should be constitutionally solved. But how that is in practice, we don't know. Uh, and it's very likely that if it is decided to be given back to Tigray, there will be a big backlash in the Amhara um, region 
where Fano militia will be mobilized. And, and um, so there are the Amhara and the Oromia regions that are very critical still. But the TPLF issue is somehow settled, at least as far as I can see. But there will be an election there. So far, there are some for formal problems with uh, the TPLF as being as competing in the elections. But I think that's very likely to be solved. So do you think this um, uh, other areas where you see violence, is that sort of a knockoff effect of the TPLF violence that there is opportunities to beat the weaker government, or do you think it's it's connected somehow? Somehow it is connected. Yes, uh, I mean the Amhara uh, government and the Fanos have been really emboldened by uh, and became stronger by the fighting on 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 uh, Abis side, and they have given been given leeway and uh, um, yeah, they they without them, Abi probably would not have been as successful in the battlefield as he was. Uh, so they know that, and they know that Abi somehow still has to deal with them. So they are, uh, yeah. And then in Oromia, that, that's, that conflict has been going on for a long time. Um, they were, the OLA have been an ally with the TPLF, uh, at least tactically, during the war. Um, now there is no, I don't think there is any uh, active collaboration between the two. Uh, so that has somehow a different dynamic, a longer history of dynamics, yeah. So oh, I, uh, we just heard that uh, the conflict in Ethiopia might be at least on a more peaceful path now. Uh, do you see other more positive trends? Because uh, what we've talked about now is more on you know, negative trends on conflict scene. Do you have any positive trends to bring to the table? No. <laughs> um, uh, no, I, the, the, uh, the, uh, the positives this year, no, it, that's not true. The Middle East is less violent now than it has been for a significant period of time, uh, which is positive. Um, but the, the most of the positives are all the stuff that didn't happen. Um, China hasn't attacked Taiwan, which is very positive indeed. But it's it's a bit sad to call that a positive trend. Uh, and we used to be so ten years ago uh, when we talked about positive trends. I mean, ten years ago, less than twenty thousand people were killed in in armed conflicts. So the totality of all casualties in 2010, which I believe was the, the record year, uh, would barely fit on the top 10 list today. So positive trends are, that's, that's, that, that's a too strong word, but the, uh, the things that haven't happened is there hasn't, there isn't organized political violence in the US, at least for a few more hours. We'll see what turns out tonight. But still, that could have gone wrong. And, and yes, we are, uh, we are in a situation with democratic decline. And, and that's very worrisome, both in, in and of itself, but also that we know that democratic decline is 
um, is often a trigger or is a common trigger of political violence uh, because of, of the timing issue. And that if you, if you see that um, your political opponent is amassing power, then the calculus is that right now we might be equally strong, but if he continues, as and very often he continues to do so, in a year he'll be much stronger, and that's why we need to strike right now. Um, so, um, sadly, no, there aren't too much. Um, on that note, could I ask a follow-up question? So, did you did I understand you correctly when that you said the the peace negotiations actually intensified the fighting because they were kind of racing for the best positions at the table? So, uh, the peace negotiated uh, they had not started when there was this spike in deaths, uh, but they they had there was a unilateral peace agreement in the summer. And then the fighting started again um, in August. Um, and then there were, there were different initiatives. And uh, then there was also a higher pressure on Ethiopia to, uh, to stop the fighting because they were in a dire economic situation. So I think the, this economic situation, international pressure, um, then pushed Ethiopia to realize that they had to end this war. But before ending the war, they had to make sure that they, they had uh, the upper hand. So this, this is something I think you've seen in many conflicts, that, that uh, they intensify the battle um, before they are going to sit down and negotiate. And um, uh, of course there were increased use of drones, in increased use of air force. Uh, that I think also killed uh, quite a lot of people in the bordering area between Amhara and Tigray at that particular time. Uh, so that also, um, but I I don't know if you have if you have kind of uh, disaggregated the numbers who, who how many on each side that died. Not I would expect that uh, at, at this time there would be more TDF forces that were dying because they they really. Also, there was a very strong offensive from the Eritrean side. There were, there were two from two sides here, uh, Eritreans and Ethiopian forces. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that's my understanding. I, um, thanks. I. Uh, that's kind. That kind of fits the the um, the picture, uh, the overall picture. Um, when. Uh, when parties are, are, when parties have a long time horizon, uh, the, the the fighting isn't as intense as if the time horizon is short. Um. I have exhausted my list of questions, uh, so I suggest that we open up for questions from the audience. If you have any. Hello, thank you. That was really insightful. I'm myself from Ukraine, but. Unfortunately, I haven't heard uh, about Ethiopia. It's been crazy following the news. I'm coming from a linguistic background and doing research on refugees. And uh, I'm particularly interested in the interchangeable use uh, of the words conflict and war and um, the consequences that it might lead to. And even listening to you, I've been like, OK, it's, it's the war. No, it's the conflict. And especially knowing how 
Putin manipulates the whole idea of like special operation and uh, uh, banning this war in Russia. So it'd be really interesting to hear your opinion on that, even though you're all about numbers. But <laughs> yes, so another numbers uh, answer <laughs> to us. Uh, minor armed conflict then is uh, 25 uh, battle-related deaths up to 999, whereas a war would be from 1,000 upwards. Uh, Yes, definitely. Why do you think then, uh, is it like a manipulative tool that media uses or, and then I, I do it myself when I'm asked to translate and I'm using the word conflict while being in Ukraine and having lost many friends and family. I know that that's not a conflict. So what's the situation and whether like, maybe you can give advice, I can do something on the personal level to fix this, fix this linguistic, bias thing um, <laughs> uh, um, yes I, I do I, I, I so the context here is that we what we the the data set uh, it's called the armed conflict data set and that's sort of armed conflict is is what we're looking at but it's tedious to say armed conflict all the time so very often we just skip armed and then we go for conflict and and that's that's not what we should do, but that's what we do. Uh, and this distinction between conflict, armed conflict, and war is also might seem uh, a bit uh, uh, strange, but it's... So what's happening in Ukraine right now is obviously extremely hurtful. Uh, obviously extremely hurtful. With It will have consequences for decades. But many of the these very small conflicts those that simmer around 25 people killed so we're we're unable to trace any significant effects from those conflicts which means that from a um welfare point of view a very small conflict isn't a very significant problem whereas wars very much are. But um, it's not just Putin does this. Um, so uh, um, Henrik mentioned uh, Nils Petigledic, uh, uh, one of the uh, old Preoites, um, who is not here today, no. So Nils Petig published an op-ed in Oftenposten uh, the same week as this country intervened in Afghanistan. And our then Prime Minister, Helmut Bonovic, um, was very uh, was stressed that we're not participating in a war, we're participating in a limited military operation. And and Nils Petri's op-ed was uh, the headline, was, if this isn't a war, then what is a war? So, uh, and I do realize why it's, there are international law that says in, if a leader of a state says this is a war, then a ton of, of uh, responsibilities kick in. So you have every incentive not to do so. But it is a war. Thanks. Um, I had a couple of questions relating to uh, the U Ukraine situation, uh, where you could empirically use the, the Ukraine uh, war as um, an illustration of that. Um, the first one is, well, a bit of a methodological problem because in large-scale wars, like uh, 
the Russian invasion in Ukraine, um, the reporting you get on people killed and people soldiers wounded tends to be messed up because there's a tendency on a lot of the reporting, both by the actors themselves but also by independent observers, to focus on how many soldiers are eliminated or taken out, meaning they are either dead or sufficiently wounded not to continue fighting. And then you have sort of wild guesstimates about is it one into three, um, is it one to four in terms of the number of people, meaning soldiers in this case, uh, wounded compared to those who die. Um, so that's a clear methodological problem. So I was wondering if how you deal with that problem in, in your uh, coding. The other uh, issue is how did you code um, battle deaths in Ukraine from uh, 2014 to 2021. In other words, was that uh, an interstate conflict, a war, uh, or was it coded in a different manner? Okay, uh, well, I'll begin with a second question. Uh, we coded it as uh, uh, two intrastate conflicts uh, between the Ukrainian government and the Donetsk People's, uh, People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic with external support from Russia uh, as they were officially fighting on behalf of these uh, groups. Um, in terms of uh, the fatalities uh, compared to wounded, it's a big problem when we get, uh, I mean, in general we can't use the general statements from the warring actors themselves uh, anyway we'll focus on lower level commanders uh, generally when we get statements or such uh, because that's it seems to the, the higher you go up in the command the more they tend to add up a few percentages uh, but uh, so we'll go with the uh, lowest possible uh, conservative estimate so if they say there are many people killed and wounded, we would assume one at least has died. And this still aggregates up as this, well, hundreds and hundreds of events of these at least one killed, or at least two killed uh, along the front line. And then we uh, rely on, uh, well, bigger daily summaries then from obituaries, basically. Uh, the UCDP? And the first reason is that there is a steep increase registered in 2022. The number of battle deaths in Myanmar has never been as high as in 2022 in the UCDP before, since it started in 1989. The second reason is that the UCDP figure is perhaps, uh, max, I mean, it's perhaps half of reality. Because... Uh, Inspired by the methodology of UCDP, we have also established at the Myanmar Institute for Peace and Security a township-based conflict database uh, using the same definitions. And there we have found just as many killed in 2022 as UCDP have when we only look at the killing of civilians. Because we don't look at combatants, because that's so difficult for MIPS to ascertain, so I have not managed to persuade them to really count that. Then there is <coughs> the nature of the killings. It's a kind of killing that we know from the first phase of escalating wars. 
That means that the main kind of killing is a targeted political murder. The military murders, seven days ago, um, the brother of a friend of mine who's a leading Rohingya was stabbed to death in Yangon. That's just one example. We have counted more than <coughs> 3,000 killings by the military of op their opponents and more than 2,000 killings of collaborators with the military by the uh, local People's Defense Forces. Then there is um, <coughs> state failure. The coup was uh, not a success in 2021. The military now does not control more than perhaps one-fifth, one-fourth of the rural townships, although they control the towns and the main highways. And they do not control information because information is based on Facebook, which is steered from Singapore. So the military supporters are <coughs> shut out of Facebook, while the opposition can continue to run their news media from abroad or from anywhere in the cybersphere. <coughs> then they, the military are planning elections, which they will be unable to organize in any organized fashion in all the places that they don't control. And there is the civil war that has grown up is a civil war among the Burman majority. In addition to that, you have the chance of an explosion of ethnic violence again, which has not been so high since the um, military coup. And finally comes the danger of this uh, conflict becoming internationalized. Uh, it's seldom discussed in the content of risk of war between China and the United States. But China has extremely heavy interests in Myanmar. They are building a transportation corridor through the country. They are in direct contact with and provide arms to five ethnic armed groups. They have a very difficult relationship to the government, the military government. And the US is supporting the opposition, not with arms, so far at least. But the opposition badly wants American weapons. So this could become a kind of <coughs> Vietnam situation. And that's why I would urge the UCDP to collaborate with the Myanmar Institute for Peace and Security in the further calculations and monitoring. The difference between the two is that UCDP is based only on English language news media, while the uh, MIPS is based on Burmese language news media. Uh, well, uh, well, it's not only based on English uh, language news media, but uh, uh, point taken. And I think my colleague who codes it uh, would be very happy to hear from you uh, and would in general uh, uh, agree with your point that my presentation should include Myanmar. She's pressured me a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> it just uh, tends to... Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd like to ask Stan a few questions, if that's okay. Uh, so you're saying that, that this is a peak since 89. Was 88 the previous peak, August 88? Was that also Burmese on Burmese violence? The Burmese on Burmese violence was in 88 with the massacre in Yangon, and there was also in Malay, in Mandalay, so there was one-sided violence. And then <coughs> the old Burma Student Defense Organization took up an armed struggle, but that never reached a proportion anywhere similar to what today. 
to see today. So the coup in 88 and the coup in 2021, are those comparable events? Yes, they are comparable because they could produce similar developments, but it didn't really in 88. It led to a number of ceasefires in 1988 with ethnic armed groups, but this time it has led to just increasing violence. And, and this, is, so this is a pattern that we see many places in it. So uh, we, we, I, bear with me while I'm, I'm drawing. We had, during the whole Cold War, we had a situation where more wars started than ended. So we were building up more and more wars, and that peaked in 1993. Then we had a peak, that's peak killed. Uh, um, after 93, Siri, I, I, I'd rather not. Uh, after 93, there was a steep decline. But what we've seen for, for the last few years is that many of the conflicts that we kind of thought either were solved or we had forgotten about from the period around the end of the Cold War, they're back. And that's, a, that's 30 years. And they're back, and it's very much the same incompatibility that they're fighting over the same questions. It's, of course, not the same people, but the organizations sure do look a lot like the organizations that were active 30 years ago. Several of them are the same organizations as, well, it's not just the one organization fighting in Myanmar, for instance. I think we have eight conflicts active or something for different territorial areas. Just to pile on to the uh, uh, cause for alarm, um, uh, if, uh, um, I think it's fair to say that if, if uh, um, uh, w the large w international we pulled out of, of Bosnia-Herzegovina, there's a fair chance that that conflict would erupt again. Um, the wars in Ethiopia, please, uh, uh, do, do these fit the same pattern? The, the 75 to 90-something, 91, yep. Is, is that the same, is the core of that conflict the same as we see today? Well, yeah, uh, somehow it is. It is uh, the, the peripheral groups or groups in the in the in the regions that are fighting the central government. Uh, you mean the actors? The actors are the same, yeah. Yeah. And the, the 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 current leaders in Ethiopia, how do they do they relate to the leaders that were there 30 years ago? So that's the, the that's a bit more unclear, yeah. So so the TPLF was fighting against the central government from 75 to 91. They won the war. They came to power. Then uh, they lost power in 2018. Mm. Then the war started in 2020 with the central government. So there is somehow uh, a pattern there. Yeah. Hmm. I have, uh, I guess, a question a little bit in extension of uh, of that, and particularly on Ethiopia to to Luis. Um, and it's about how how stable or unstable the situation in in Ethiopia is at the moment, uh, both with regard to the strength of the uh, of the TPLF today after the conflict, um, 
we don't see very often that that conflicts are so devastating that that uh, a rebel group is is completely destroyed. Uh, Sri Lanka is uh, is a case in point where where you've seen you know conflict ending because one size wins uh, decisively. Uh, but is that the case uh, in in your assessment now for for Ethiopia? Would would we be likely see that TPLF could return? Uh, and the second part of the question is um, uh, as you also alluded to, um, Ethiopia has seen a lot of, uh, of regional conflicts and, and has at times had four or five different active regional conflicts going on at the same time. Do you see now any danger, any risk that, uh, that other regional conflicts in Ethiopia could, uh, could uh, rise and, and become significant anytime soon? Okay, so um, um, I think the Ethiopian government led by Abiy Ahmed is a weak government. It, uh, we know we, we were very much impressed by uh, Abiy Ahmed's reform process when he, when he came to power. But uh, what has become clear is that he is, um, he's not building institutions. Uh, he is uh, very much uh, doing things his, his personal way. Uh, so, uh, there is now a perception of uh, very much fragility and instability and a, and a weaker state than during the EPRDF time uh, because of lack of institutionalization, increased corruption, uh, all these kind of things. And also a very strong perception of uh, insecurity for a civilian population all over the country. So. Uh, when you go to Ethiopia now, you can you can be all right in Addis Ababa, but then if you go out, your Norwegian travel insurance will not be valid because it's so much unpredictability. And of course, that's a very silly illustration of the very, very uh, serious situation on the ground. Um, so you have you have also conflicts in Somali region uh, where uh, with the border to Somalia um, that has somehow been settled for a while that could also re-erupt um, and then you have uh, you have liberation fronts in the west in Gambella and Ben Shangul towards Sudan and South Sudan there are uh, there are instabilities and episodes of violence there too but I think the biggest and most serious threat uh, to the Ethiopian state is the Oromo Liberation Army uh, and their activities around the country. Um, yes. Uh, and then, of course, if, if the Amharas do not feel that they're um, included and heard by Abiy Ahmed, uh, they, of course, have big potential of mobilizing. But so far, there seem to be uh, some elites that are feeling that they are they have a say and that they are included. So, so from the prosperity party, from the ruling party, uh, and they try to deal with the Fano militia and successful. Sometimes not always successful. So, there is a potential also for uh, for instability and security there. But I think the Oromia situation is the most serious, and. Yes, Tigray, TPLF. Uh, you have the uh, the representative of TPLF now, Getachew Rada, who is now traveling the country. 
He's even visiting Amhara and talking to friendly handshakes with the Amhara administration. Um, but I think there is a problem for the TPLF to have uh, support and uh, credibility among the population. Um, so, you know, people would question why was this war necessary when uh, when now they are so good friends with the, 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 the central government and the TPLF. So if there is a free election there, uh, the TPLF would would be seriously challenged by by other uh, parties in Tigray. Um, as it is now, uh, the TPLF leaders probably realize this, and so they would not probably then they would stick with the federal government and they would stick with the, the with the agreement. And um, uh, I don't think there is a likelihood of any uh, re-emergence of armed conflict. Uh, conducted by or offensive by the TPLF. I think that's quite unlikely. Thank you. And that was very interesting. Um, so I was wondering about this uh, peak in fatalities that you observed uh, You observed before the ceasefire or the negoci negotiations. Um, do you think it predicts the, the, the trend after or the success of the um, agreement uh, somehow? Um, this escalation of deaths, uh, can, can you say anything about the, how the future will, uh, or the success of it? And then I also had a question on, um, more general on the trends. So if you had to predict for t five to 10 years from now, how do you think these trends that you talked about, the interstate conflicts will evolve? Do you have any take on that? Thanks. So, so success, then you mean that they were able to agree on something? Yeah. I guess it did, yes, because the TPLF was not in a position because of the big, big losses in the, in the weeks and months ahead of the negotiation to say no to the propositions that came. Uh, so they, that somehow ensured that there was a deal. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is also, of course, a tragedy that uh, uh, they use these kind of tools to let so many people die because of brinkmanship in, order, in front of um, peace negotiations. Yes, I, I think it'll go down uh, because that's what it usually does. It's, there is, there is this, over a very long period of time, there's this mean and right now we're far above it, then we tend to go down. And if we don't, then we have a problem. If this is the new normal, then we have a real problem. And there are a few things that could indicate that this could be the new, new, uh, uh, new normal. And that, for instance, uh, the UN Security Council is no longer a, an, an effective force for good, it's deadlocked well, for obvious reasons. Um, some significant international forces that used to be providing a public security good are less likely to do that in the years to come. Uh, so 
hopefully it'll go down. So my question was more on the type of conflict that will dominate the, the landscape in the, in the next few years. Do you think this type of conflict will dominate or do you Oh, right. No, I don't think, I think they, uh, I think they will dominate in the fatality records, but not in the numbers. Yes, I can add a bit on the trend of like, we've seen an increase both in interstate conflict and the internationalized conflicts where uh, the say, uh, where the well, rebel group then receives uh, secondary warring support from governments has also in the past decades uh, gone up a fair bit from basically being non-existent before to being around uh, well, four to five cases per year, which then also represents a case where there is uh, another state's army fighting against a state's uh, army, which is, well, very much uh, similar to interstate conflicts. So a sort of hidden uh, <laughs> case of interstate conflicts. This is an area that I know really very little about, and it's been really interesting to listen to you. And I'm wondering, because you, what I've gathered is there seem to be some, um, not similarities, but things that can maybe um, exist in a, as a way to understand both armed conflicts and, and also the possibility of negotiations. And I'm wondering, um, especially uh, concerning the war in Ukraine, um, is, is there anything that can uh, maybe signal <laughs> um, or give hope of uh, any peace negotiations? Um, you know, is, is there any trends that, that have to, or situations that have to be there for, for that to happen, or is that not something that you see a pattern with in different armed struggles? I, I'm, I'm afraid I, my hunch, which is based on very, very little insight, is no, because the so if uh, um, any any uh, ceasefire at this stage would be very beneficial for the Russians. So uh, there is uh, there is there is no reason to expect that a ceasefire would be would reduce the long term suffering, in that you, will you allow one side to build up potential to wreak more havoc. That's that's not helpful. A peace agreement, uh, that's very, very hard to see how it could come about. There is basically no chance of the Ukrainians signing a peace agreement in the current, uh, unless the counteroffensive breaks apart fully, that would not include a return of all occupied territory, including Crimea which I don't think the Russians, uh, well, it would be probably political suicide for Putin to hand over Crimea without a fight. So the likelihood of a negotiated settlement is very low in the short term at least. And uh, I think the more likelihood is, well, more violence in the short term, a possible collapse of the Russian defenses if what we're seeing in at the moment in from the counteroffensive holds true. And that's probably the best scenario you can hope for. And if you in a year's time ask us why we didn't see Viktor Havantorovich uh coup against Putin, uh because we 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 didn't see it coming. And there could be so many different things that we could be sitting here in a year so uh the it's very, very consequential 
things that we we don't see it coming and it could be the size of a semi trailer we don't see it on that point um i guess what i'm hearing is that you're not very optimistic about uh, any uh, predictive value of the ucdp analysis uh, or are there anything in, a, in other words are there examples of conflicts um armed conflicts that you have seen at some historical point in time um increasing rapidly and then erupting into a, a large scale war later on i mean that would indicate whether the data sets are good enough for uh, predicting maybe they are not but that would be an interesting question and the second thing i wanted to say is it like um possibly something good news um and that's the notion that i got from Sean's presentation where you're saying that um normally uh ucdp recorded deaths are based on news sources um and other publicly available uh sources now the general tendency of analysis of the media picture these days seems to be that it's getting better uh in other words uh it's more accurate reporting coming out more quickly um not only because of the internet well mainly because of the internet but also the sort of video recordings that you sort of get on the internet pretty quickly so in other words the available publicly uh, the publicly available information seems to be increasing that should also theoretically at least mean that it's the analysis that you are doing in with the uh, UCDP uh, program um could be gradually imp improving but then there is a, a counter argument what then happens if there's a very um abrupt um deterioration in the uh, availability of 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 news say if the security situation becomes so uh, dangerous that both diplomats and uh, journalists uh, are evacuated out of a zone so um, sudan uh, over the last 2 or 3 months uh, what kind of um challenges uh, would that be for you when you're going to report on on 2023 so i think actually uh, a worry i've had about the data is that actually some new sources or rather our availability of other source of sources such as uh, twitter and uh, so on improves the data to such an extent that the trend might actually be threatened in many ways that some of the bigger numbers we see in recent years might actually partially be attributable to use of better data sources that were not available uh, previously especially than uh, like uh, uh how we are now able to use uh, uh not just english language sources so for most countries we will use the local language sources i was actually surprised to hear that uh, we apparently don't do that for myanmar uh but because of like the availability of google translate to uh to solve much of the uh, our previous inability to use uh local sources and that sort of uh yeah gives us a much better picture and uh, in cases such as Ukraine we do to some extent uh I have personally been going through uh 
uh, pictures, videos of uh, fighting in order to determine numbers from specific fronts. It's just, it's generally just so time consuming compared to the benefits that you can't do it on a full scale. It's just, well, a bombardment of information that you can't possibly go through in that amount of time. Um, and then uh, it was the question on how, <laughs> when, uh, when data becomes suddenly unavailable. Yeah, that's a big issue. Like uh, that, I don't really know, uh, like general will try to find ways to work around it, such as relying on Twitter, uh, like local uh, people, when we can find such sources that we find sufficiently reliable. But it's also always, to some extent, down to the coder, depending on how much time is available to that person, I guess. But that means also, like, as we do backtrack and we do go, uh, go backwards, those sort of things will, over time, probably become sort of fixed, but oh, less likely in the short term. Yes, I do, uh, realizing that there are proper experts in the room uh, who've been working on this for a very long time. Um, it's really, really hard to predict sudden changes in conflict behavior, period. Uh, a, uh, a friend of this room, Eric Gartsky, uh, coined this, that war is in the error term. And his point is that if, if we knew, if we were able to predict this, then surely the conflict parties would be too. And we would uh, go towards the position in that there wouldn't be a need for a fight because they knew in advance who would win it. And, and that's obviously not where we are. And the fact that that's not where we are makes this unpredictable to some extent. Now, what some of my colleagues here have been doing over the last four or five years is to try and fail and try better and try better. And you, you do, if you try to try better over three, four or five years, you actually get pretty good. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say that, that uh, um, the Views project is putting out some really interesting predictions and with a clear ambition of becoming even better in the years to come. Thank the audience for good questions and for showing up uh, on a late Tuesday afternoon. Thank you.